Okay. Now don't forget, starting October 5th, we will be meeting in a new location. Uh, we will be at the Gunnersville Rec Center on Wednesday nights at 6, 6 p.m. Um, right now, until we you know, kind of pick up and, and grow a little bit, Wednesday nights will be our only our only meeting that we'll have there. Uh, but it's going to be a good time. It's going to be a great time to be out in the, in the community. Uh, but tonight, we are going to be wrapping up our doctrine series. And this doctrine series is pretty important. Uh, I know some of you have really enjoyed it. Uh, but today we're going to be wrapping it up and we're going to be covering kind of three, three individual doctrines in one. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking about the work of God. So we're going to be talking about the doctrines of creation, salvation, and consummation. So the doctrine of creation and humanity. So just like all the other doctrines that we've explored, the Christian view of humanity <clears throat> kind of offers us a, a unique expen uh, a, a unique perspective. You know, some religions or some worldviews they they stress the spiritual or the ideal nature of humanity, even to the extent that that the physical is viewed as as an illusion like how many of us have heard we live in a simulation <laughs> sorry we live in a simulation um yeah other worldviews though that they stress the material nature of of humanity and they argue that we consist of only flesh blood and dna like that's it like when we're done, we're done. Like we're, we're just flesh, blood, and DNA. But in Scripture, we see that human beings are both physical and spiritual beings. Okay, Genesis 2, 7 tells us that. Luke 10, 27 tells us that. And 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 48 tells us that we are both body and spirit. That, that takes a lot for, for some people to, to kind of grasp, though. But something else sets the Christian view apart, the image of God. Like that is what sets us apart from all these others, that we are made in the image of God, like Genesis 1, 26-31 in Psalms 8 tells us. Man is the created image of God, and that distinguishes us from the rest of God's creation and creatures. We don't look like an elephant. You know, we don't look like a jaguar. Like we, we're distinct. We, we stand out. And the idea that the image of God is my Christians, that's why we hold firmly the sanctity of human life. Or we're supposed to. And not just in the womb, but the sanctity of human life outside of the womb. So if we're going to be pro-life, be pro-life. All the way, through and through. Um... Psalms 139, 13 through 16 tells us that. And it is the foundation of how we should treat and relate to other people. James chapter 3 tells us that we are to show no partiality, no favoritism, that we are to treat all equally. And this is how and why we can speak of, of the dignity of humanity. And it's why we have to treat each other with love, respect, and kindness. So that's, that's the doctrine of humanity. That's 
who we are, why we are, how we came to be, because God created us in his image. We have a body. We have, we have a spiritual side as well. But then there's the doctrine of sin. This is where everything gets messed up, when everything should have been perfect. you got to think these, these perfect conditions of the Garden of Eden. No murder, no sin at that time when it was created. Everything was perfect. God walked with Adam and Eve, and, and, and there, was, there was true fellowship there. But it didn't last long. It did not last long at all. Satan tempted Eve. And in return, Eve tempted Adam. And because of their sin, the whole thing unraveled. The whole thing came undone, the whole plan. Before Adam and Eve had peace with God. Adam and Eve had peace with God. They had fellowship, communion with God. They had peace with each other. Even with the creation itself, they had peace. Sin ruined all of that. Sin drove a wedge between humanity and God, and, and it stared us into conflict. Like Genesis chapter 3 tells us about the fall of man. It steered us into conflict with God that we became enemies of God, that we became dead in our sins to Him. Prior to the fall, peace ruled. And now peace, since the fall, has been replaced with conflict and strife. So when it comes to sin... How did it get there? Like if you've never read the Bible, if you've never heard the story, Adam's sin causes our sin. Our involvement in Adam's fall, or Adam's fall, in Adam's fall, has been known as our original sin. And once sin came into the world, Romans 5:12 tells us that death spread to all men. This is called the imputation of Adam's sin. Some reject this. Some reject this doctrine. Holding that it's simply not fair to judge all humanity because of the sin of Adam. Like it's not fair that I have to pay for Adam's sin. Like it is not fair. Like why why do I have to pay for it? Why am I guilty of it? I didn't do it. He did it. Would you have done anything better than him? That's really what you've got to ask yourself. Would you have done better than Adam? Even now today, are you doing better than Adam could have done? No. So we're still guilty. So it's not a matter of, well, it's not fair that Adam's sin causes me to be in sin. No, your sin causes you to be in sin because you would do no better. You would, we would be no better off if, if it was you. Again, some reject it. They see Adam only as a bad example for us. Like, hey, don't do what he did while doing the things he did. But this view is contrary to Scripture. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. The, the Scripture tells us this, Romans 5, 12 through 21, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. Adam sinned, so we all sin, and the result is summed up in the doctrine of total depravity. This total in total depravity has two meanings. The first is that all of us, everybody, every human being except Christ Jesus, 
is sinners. Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. Every one of us is a sinner. The second is that us, our whole being, body, mind, soul, spirit, emotions, will, is sinful. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Sin is a deprived state of humanity, originating from the fall and continuing in our idolatrous attitudes, thoughts, actions that are all against God, which causes us to be alienated, that causes death, and judgment. The Bible spells out the effects of our sin that we are condemned. Number one, we're alienated, guilt, we're guilty, and we're shameful. We're in bondage and slavery to sin, and eventually sin will lead to death. There is sinfulness of sin. We are born with a sin nature. We are born in sin, but we quickly add to our own, our own sins in the mix. Now I want to clear something up real quick. Do I believe that if a child, something happens to a child, that God will send a child to hell. No, I do not. There is a nature that we are born into. Yes, we quickly add to our own to our own sins into the mix. Sinners sin. That's it. And while speaking about kids, I have never had to tell a kid or teach a kid how to lie. Have you ever had to teach a kid how to lie? No. I always try to teach my to tell the truth. Sinners are going to sin. That's what they do. And we have done so much ever since ever since Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. The Bible uses so many words to, to refer to sin to show us how how tragic and deadly sin actually is. If we read Psalms 51 and we see the different words that David uses to describe his sin, we run into danger when we take our sins too lightly. It's like a tornado. Sin destroys everything in its path. It will destroy everything in its path, eventually destroying you. So where is the hope? Where is the, 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 the where is it? Where's the hope? Where's the peace? That is found in the doctrine of salvation. That is found in Jesus Christ. The tragedy of sin sets the stage for the glory and beauty and the joy of salvation. When you actually come to terms with your sin and you recognize your sin and you realize your need for a Savior, you will see the beauty of it. You will see the joy of salvation. We, we just saw how Adam's sin was imputed to us that because of his sin, we stand, we stand condemned. So Paul offers another equation in, in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, that Christ, one act of obedience, we have life. The, the parallel between Adam and Jesus looks like this. Through one man, there was disobedience and transgression. The result of that, death and condemnation. Through one man, Christ, we have obedience and righteousness, which leads to life and justification. And since we are dead in our sins, and dead people cannot save themselves, salvation begins with God. You cannot wake up one day and be like, oh, I'm going to be a Christian today, Lord forgive me, and, and go back. No, that's not how that works. Salvation is a gift from God. It's not raise your hand and repeat the sinner's prayer after me and you're good. 
you're good to go. That is not how this works. Salvation is a gift from God, and it begins with God because Jesus Christ himself says in John 6, 44, no one can come to the Father. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Salvation is initiated by God, not by you. This is known as the effectual call. And this is the one of many terms the Bible uses to, to speak about the work of salvation. See, Christ's teaching here shows us that God chooses his children, known as the doctrine of election. God choosing or, or election is not based on anything we do or on our own merit, meaning we are saved by faith through grace, not by works. In fact, God chooses us before the very foundations of the world. Ephesians 1.4 tells us this. That God's election is based on his own sovereign will and it is for his glory alone. Romans 8, 26 through 30 and Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 tells us that, that this is it. Scripture stresses that salvation is a glorious work of a triune God from start to finish. God decrees our salvation. Christ accomplishes the work of salvation on the cross and the Holy Spirit applies the work of salvation to us. So Christ's work may be summed up in the word redemption. This means that we were once slave to sin and its effects, but we've been redeemed. What does redeem mean? That means or that we've been brought back by the blood of Christ and are now his children, Galatians 4, 1 through 7. We now belong to God and we are now new creatures. We are no longer the people we used to be, or you shouldn't be. But I know a lot of people, they'll post Jesus and God and the Bible on Facebook and Instagram and all this stuff, but the next thing you know, they're treating people like they hate them. Can't love God and hate his creation. We're no longer the people that we used to be. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and he's transformed, he's transformed us into his kingdom because of his son that we have redemption through in the forgiveness of our sin. Colossians 1, 13 through 14. Paul says that the doctrine of redemption should change the way we live. That because we have this, this, this new way of living, this new creation, that we have this salvation, that we should change everything we are because now we're reflecting and glorifying and worshiping God. Another critical term in our salvation work is justification. Okay, and justification is a legal term, and all that means is that we are declared innocent in the eyes of God. So God is the holy and the righteous judge, and we stand before him guilty in our sin. We stand before him and we're guilty. We're dripping of sin. Christ, who became human is, and lifted up on the cross, bearing the penalty and enduring God's wrath on our behalf, because of what Christ done, the righteous, the righteous judge declares us not guilty and instead declares us righteous and holy because of what Jesus did. Romans 3, 21 through 25 and 5, 17. We see 
that there's, there's, there's actually more words that we can use to summarize Christ's work and how, how he undid what Adam did. In Adam, we had condemnation, alienation, wrath, enmity, slavery, bondage, guilt, shame, death. But in Christ, we have justification, reconciliation, propitiation, sonship, freedom, peace, life. One other contrast is that Adam represents sinful man. If you're a sinful man, the self rules. But if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit rules. The Holy Spirit regenerates us, as John chapter 3 tells us. It cleanses us and renews us, making us, making us righteous. He, he indwells in us so that he can, he can guide us, he can teach us, he can direct us, he can convict us. He also seals us until the day of our full and final redemption, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. And finally, further, the Spirit guides and leads us, empowering us to bear the fruit of righteousness, like Galatians 5 tells us to do, and 1 Corinthians 2 tells us to do, that, that if we truly are Christ-like, we are going to bear the fruit of Christ. Salvation provides all of these benefits. Above all, though, salvation unites us to Christ and brings us into the fellowship and the bond of, of the Godhead. In fact, at the time of our salvation, the greatest gift that God gives us is his self. So salvation is a work from God from start to finish. So where does that leave us? What is our role in all of this? It is to respond in faith and in repentance. Mark 1, 15, Acts 16, 30-31. Even the act of faith does not come from us. It is a gift from God, though. How do we know this? Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that, that our, our, our faith is a gift from God. Faith and repentance relate not just to the moment of salvation, but we are called to a life of, of faith and repentance and to live through the power of the gospel. That's what we're called to do. Where do we get this calling from? Galatians 2, 14 and Philippians 2, 12 through 18. So that brings us to, to consummation. What is that? The future. The church. So we have the doctrine of the church. Christians are not saved to be individuals or lone rangers or islands. We're not saved to do this all by ourselves. No man is a as an island. John Doan, the poet, wrote that. We are saved to be part of a new community called the church. And the New Testament emphasizes the importance of church. And we went through this in a prior message about the importance of church, about the importance of growing in, in church. Jesus ordained the church as a means to spread the gospel, to make disciples, and to, bring, and to make God's plan come to pass. That's in Matthew 28, Mark 16, 15. It's there. After Christ ascended into heaven, having accomplished his mission, he did what he came to do. The Holy Spirit descended and it empowered the 12 disciples and that's when the church began in Acts chapter 2. These early, early believers, Acts chapter 2 verse 30, 43 through 47 and Acts 2 42, it, it, 
they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. They also put feet to their faith. What does that mean? They walked it out. They were willing to go to prison. They were willing to be killed. They were willing to be martyred. They put their faith in action. They took care of the poor. And they were living and acting generously. The New Testament church was and is entirely un unlike anything else. The social divisions that govern other communities, other cities, like we see out in the world, that there's, there's divisions all in the city, whether it be race, whether it be uh, economic status, whether it be, you know, whatever it is. All th those do not exist, and they are entirely absent in the church, or they should be. There should be no racism in the church. There should be no poverty line in the church. Go back and read Acts chapter 2 through 4. Read the book of Acts, and it tells you about the early church and how they had all things in common, that they, they, they shared in all things. There was no division in them. There was no division of rich or poor between genders or race or or anything. The politics that govern other institutions are absent in the church. Tell that to some churches in 2022, though. Politics has no room in the church. Christ established one rule for the church. One rule. Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to start this church, get to hell, I ain't going to prevail against it, but I got one rule for you. I want you to be marked by your love. John 17. I want you to be known by your love. This love flows church like this deep from the roots of the church. Love is there. And this love it's it's also rooted deep in truth. And it's a powerful witness to the world. When the world is, is, is so caught up in hating each other and going to war with each other and, and protesting each other or canceling each other, the church is there to step up in love with respect and with dignity. The church's primary function is to preach the word, proclaiming the gospel and teaching the whole counsel of God, not just what makes people feel good about their self, but we have to mention sin, we have to mention the need of repentance in order for people to hear it. How will they hear without a preacher? How will they come to repentance without a hearing from the preacher? How will they know without the gospel? The church is also to practice two sacraments or two ordinances. The Lord's Supper, which is also known as communion, and baptism. These functions are to be carried out in accordance with the scripture and in an orderly manner. Just like, the, just like everything else has to do with the church, everything has to be done in order. Whether it be the ordinances, whether it be the gifts, or whether it be the fruits, whatever it is, is to be done in order. And God has ordained offices within the church to provide leadership for the church. You got deacons, you got pastors, elders, bishops, you got apostles. God used uses the church to spread the knowledge of the glory of the Lord 
as the waters covers the sea, like Habakkuk 2.14 tells us. The church is Christ's body on earth, carrying out the mission he started, which is to make God known. While the church is ordained by God, it's made up of people. And since it's made up of people, it's not always going to be perfect. However, that is not an excuse and that is not a reason to give up on it and try to live the Christian life by yourself. Rather, the humility, rather in humility, we recognize our own imperfections and the collective imperfections of the church and we still remain committed to one another in love through the bond and the power of the Holy Spirit growing in grace, truth, and love like Ephesians 4 tells us to do. So what does that say about the future? Where does that leave us? The work that Christ began on the cross, promised back in Genesis 3.15, will someday be complete. This is where consummation comes in. There's many different viewpoints on this. However, a lot of different viewpoints. And I've seen churches split and fight and argue and bicker and backstab over this right here. However, regarding the events that will happen before the completion, some theologians argue that Christ's second coming will be in two parts. First, the rapture of the believers, and the second part is the coming of Christ. Some think that there's going to be a literal seven-year tribulation. Some think that there'll be a literal thousand-year reign. A thousand-year reign on earth called premillennialism. Many, many people, theologians and scholars, debate how to interpret Revelation and other prophetic books of Scripture. There are events to come, and, and there's differences among the three views. I'm going to give you the three views of the completion. There's historical yeah, that. <laughs> the second coming, a thousand-year reign in an eternal state. Postmillennialism, there's a thousand-year reign first, then the second coming, and then the eternal state. There's a millennial, that, yeah, that again. The second coming, there is no 1,000-year reign, and then the eternal state. How do we believe it? Historical premillennialism. That's how we view it. Now when it comes to tribulation and, and all that other stuff, that's, that's a different teaching for a different day. But despite these views of interpretations, the church has always agreed on the three fundamental points recording the, uh, regarding the, the, the doctrine of the future. One, Christ will physically, bodily return to earth in victory. And that is, that is the second coming. Two, all of human history is leading up to the, to the culmination of God's purpose and for creation, meaning the new heaven and the new earth. And three, that these doctrines are intended to give us hope and to, leave us to lead us to pure holiness. So when we see the second coming in Acts 1, the second coming in Acts 1, 
the, the disciples stood gazing into the heavens, having just witnessed the ascension of Jesus to the throne of God in heaven. And two angels described as, as men in white robes come down and, to, and they look at this astonished and dumbfounded group who are just looking up in the sky like, did you, you, you see that? And they declare in Acts 1.11, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This refers to the second coming, which will be a physical bodily return of Christ. So this doctrine permeates the, the New Testament as the apostles wait for Christ's return. Look at 2 Thessalonians, uh, Revelation 19. It, it foretells the fulfillment of the single greatest promise of history, the return of Christ to reign on earth. So the second coming will be the, the fruition of the dreams and the hopes of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles and of the people of God throughout the millennia it will be the event that makes everything right. Amos 9, 11 through 15, it will make everything right. The second coming will be a time of both victory and judgment. For those who belong to Christ, the second coming will mean that eternal life in heaven with God. Victory won. But for those outside of Christ who have rejected him, and the gospel, the second coming, will be treated like they are separated from God forever in eternal punishment of the lake of fire. Revelation 20, 11 through 15 tells us all about that. So not only is there going to be a second coming, but we are getting a new heaven and a new earth. Following the second coming, we'll see the new heaven and new earth described in Revelation 21. Here, everything will be made new. And this is the the culmination of, of the process of restoration that Christ began on the cross. So this new heaven and this new earth mark the completion of the work of redemption. And as we move into Revelation 22, we see the description of a garden with a river running through it looking rather familiar to Genesis chapter 2. But here's the difference in this garden and that garden. In, in Revelation 22, sin is gone forever. Revelation 22, verse 3, sin is gone forever and the glory of God rules supremely and exclusively. When John, the author of the book of Revelation, saw and heard this, he fell down and he worshipped. So what does all of this tell us? That we have a life full of hope and holiness. That the doctrines uh, of the future offer hope in times of suffering or trouble and, and in times of evil. That we have hope. But these doctrines also intend to spur us onto godliness and, and, and lives of holiness. And we should not wait. We should not dare to wait passively for the second coming, but actively. Peter tells us how we should live in light of these doctrines of the future. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. 2 Peter 3.14 So in closing, this is what we have to do. We have to be living theology. 
As Christians, we are, pe- we are a people of beliefs and behaviors. These important doctrines that we have, that we've been exploring, that we've been looking at, are not merely... All these doctrines that we've been looking at, they're not just uh, offer a list of things that we affirm. Like, yeah, Bible says that. Yeah, we do that. We do that. We check, 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 check. This isn't that. These are living truths, and, and, and they're powerful, and they're dynamic, and, and, and these important doctrines change lives. Doctrine is both a matter of getting it right, orthodoxy, and also a matter of living it out, orthopraxy. Ultimately, doctrine drives us to a life of worship and worship of the true God. Paul's prayer for the Ephesian believers captures it pretty good. I'm, I'm going to close in this prayer. But I just want you to remember that the doctrines of the future offer hope in times of suffering, hope in the times of trouble, and hope in the times of evil when it seems to prosper. So, Father, I pray that Christ may reside in in, in the hearts of all believers through faith. That you, Lord, being being who you are, what will keep us, keep us pure, keep us righteous, Lord. Father, like your word says in Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is breadth and length, height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And it is in Christ's name I pray. Amen.